So for the last little while, we've been in the book of John, and so this Sunday will be uh, our last Sunday in John for several weeks. We're going to then take a break from the book of John and, and do a couple other series, do a few other uh, topics that we will discuss for the next several weeks. So this Sunday, we'll close our time in John for the time being. So if you would, if you have your Bible, turn with me to John chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 43 through 54 this morning. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, there are several on this table back here to my left, which would be your right. Uh, if you don't own one, grab it and keep it. It's our gift to you. We'd be more than happy for you to have it. I hope I want everyone to own one, to have a copy of God's Word. So if you need one, feel free to get up and grab one this morning. So uh, as you'll notice as well, we, if you're visiting with us for the first time and it seems a little loud in here. We have our children with us, our little ones with us this morning, which is something we just started doing. We're no longer doing child care on the first Sunday of the month. So we have our little babies in here with us this morning, which I think is wonderful. So to the parents in here, listen, if your kids start getting loud, I don't mind. I have a way of tuning it out as loud as they can be. Trust me, I could be louder. Uh, so I don't mind. It is not a problem. That does not disturb us. We are thankful for the gift of children. So this morning, again, we'll be in John 4, uh, verses 43 through 54. I'll be reading from the ESV, um, and it reads, And after two days he departed for Galilee, for Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. And when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. And Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed in all of his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea. To Galilee. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for this opportunity to fellowship together this morning. Um, God, I just pray that your spirit would rest upon me this morning, that as I preach, God, you would be glorified. Help us to open the word of God together. God, I ask that you would teach us during this time that Christ would be glorified. Help us to see what we can't see on our own, God, reveal to us what's lacking in each of us, what our need is. Help us to see the purpose of these verses this morning. And God, I pray that you would do the work that only you can of changing hearts, of bringing people from death to life, of showing them the reality and the majesty and the glory of Christ. Father, I pray that you would be glorified through our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So the gospel, according to John, begins with the apostle telling us in no uncertain terms that Jesus is God. He's the Son of God. He tells us that Jesus is the Word made flesh, the Word that was in the beginning, before the beginning of time, not just with God, but that he was God. And after shedding light on Jesus' divine nature, John says that this word becomes flesh and reveals to us the glory and grace of the Father. And after this opening prologue, then John moves along to the testimony of John the Baptist, a man who was sent as the forerunner to the Messiah. And John is baptizing and he's making disciples and he's preaching repentance and the coming of the kingdom. And John the Baptist continues to testify about the glory of God, pointing uh, the attention away from himself and directing attention to Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in verse 35 of chapter 1, John begins detailing Jesus' call to his disciples. And in verses 35 through 38, I just want to read that for us quickly, and there's a reason for this. So John chapter 1, verse Verses 35 through 38, this is what John the Apostle writes. And he says, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And then Jesus turned and saw them following and he said to them, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? Seeking. See here, brothers and sisters, Jesus asks a significant question, and it's a question I would pose to each of you this morning. What are you seeking? Why are you following Jesus? Is it something that you're looking for from him, something that you're expecting from him? See, this question demands that we examine ourselves and our innermost desires, See, there are people all over the world who go to church services and Bible studies and they gather at these conferences and they're seeking and pursuing Jesus. See, this is not a new phenomenon. Even in Jesus' day, he was very popular. There were people crowding around Jesus, hounding him, obsessed with him. Or should I say obsessed with his power? See, why were these people following Jesus? Why is Jesus so popular? What are these people looking for? Well, I'd love to believe that every person who pursues Christ is doing it genuinely with pure and right motives. We know that's not the case. There are those who seek Jesus not because he's the highest treasure, not because he's our means of peace and forgiveness and reconciliation, but there are people who are following Jesus with an expectation And as we'll see this morning, there are those that are enamored by the power of Jesus. They're in love with the signs and wonders. So they have no affections for the person of Christ, only the performance of Christ. They're not seeking the Messiah, they're seeking the miracles. And Jesus rebukes this type of seeker. This isn't genuine belief. You see, if we are seeking Jesus just as a miracle worker, that's not saving faith. He receives no honor in that. See, as we look at this text before us this morning, we'll see this idea begin to play out amongst Jesus' own people in his own hometown 
of Galilee. But then we'll also see a man who makes a bit of a progression, who goes from simply seeking Jesus for assistance to real belief in Jesus Christ. And so as we look at the text before us this morning, rather than laying out three points, I want to look at three scenes, right? This is sort of a story that's laid out for us, and I think there are three scenes to this story. And this is the way that we'll examine it. Scene number one, so if you're taking notes, you can use these as your headings or to track along with us. Scene number one is the welcome. We'll see that in verses 43 through 45, the welcome. And scene number two is the request. The request, and we'll see that in verses 46 through 49. And finally, scene number three is the response. The response, and we'll see that in verses 50 through 54. Listen, my goal this morning is a really simple one. There are two key things that I think we can take away from all of this, from this entire story. Number one, and first and foremost, is I want you to see the glory of Christ. I hope to illuminate his grace and his power as the son of God and the savior of the world. But I also hope that everyone here has a clear understanding that seeking Christ for signs is not the same as seeking him for salvation. You can love all that Jesus does and still not love him. So that's my goal this morning is to make these realities clear. So let's begin. Scene number one is the welcome. So Jesus, as we had talked about last week, he's just finished two incredibly successful days of ministry among the Samaritans. And it began with this encounter with this Samaritan woman at the well. And by the time this encounter ends, Jesus ends up spending two additional days there in Samaria with the townspeople. And it says that they come to believe in Jesus, not because of the woman's testimony, but because they themselves had heard Jesus speak, and they came to believe in him. And so when we arrive here at verse 43, it acts as a bit of a transitional verse, and it advances us to the next stop in Jesus' journey. Verse 43 says, after the two days, he departed for Galilee. So after the two days there with the the Samaritans, Jesus moves on, and he heads towards Galilee. But then in verse 44, John the Apostle gives us this parenthetical statement. And it says, For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Now, this is a proverbial statement that Jesus himself makes in the the Synoptic Gospels. In uh, Matthew 13, Mark 6, and Luke 4, Jesus makes this statement himself. And this is just a statement that reminds us of God's people to have a history of rejecting him. If you recall, they turned on the prophets. They ignored their warnings. They rejected the men that God had raised up and sent to them to call them to repentance. Not only did they turn on them, they also murdered them. See, God's people had a history of rejecting those that God sent to them. So why does John include that here? See, ultimately, John puts this statement here as a way of contrasting the difference between the Samaritans who received Jesus and then his own people who would then reject him. But see, what we see here is that Jesus intentionally goes to them anyway, knowing that he would be rejected, knowing that he would have no honor. And we get to verse 44, something a little bit perplexing happens. This is kind of confusing to us. 
Let's look at verse 45. It says, so when he had come to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Well, that's a little odd, isn't it? Jesus had just said he receives no honor in his own hometown. So is Jesus wrong? Was he wrong about these people? Isn't this a contradiction? It says they, they welcomed him. So what's happening here? What is going on? What is happening here? What is this welcome? You see, when the text says that they welcomed him, it's not them welcoming him as the Christ. This isn't the Galileans rolling out the red carpet for Jesus to worship him as the Messiah. They're not welcoming him as the Savior of the world or the Son of God. They're not falling at his feet here to worship him. And how do we know that? Well, we have a clue to that. We'll see in the rest of our text. But we can even see it from the second half of verse 45 here. For it says they welcomed him. And here's the important part. It says, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast. You see, this welcome isn't what you think it is. This is more so a welcome home to our boy, the miracle worker. Yes, come on home, Jesus, the one who turned water to wine. Yes, we love you. Welcome home to our boy, Jesus, our homeboy. We're more than happy to associate with you if you're going to continue to do stuff like that. If you can continue to make water wine, if you can heal all of our, our diseases, yes, welcome, come, please. That's what's happening here. See, these are not followers of Jesus. They're simply fans. Brothers and sisters, this is not saving faith. Faith, this is a love for the sensational, the miraculous. These people just wanted Jesus to perform more miracles. They did not love Jesus. They only loved what he could do for them. See, so as one that they perceived to be a miracle worker, of course they welcomed him. I mean, how useful could this guy be? He could cure all of our diseases. He could fill our bellies. He could fix our situation. Man, this guy is useful to us. Yes, welcome home, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there is a great danger to believing in Christ this way. This kind of welcome is not honoring to Christ. It doesn't even come close to giving him the glory that he deserves. This is not the belief that saves. You see, this is actually the kind of belief that is synonymous with what we find in John chapter 2, verse 23. If you would, flip back briefly a couple of pages and let's look at that together. John chapter 2, verse 23. There's a connection to what happens in our story here and what's happened in John chapter 2. Verse 23, and I'll just read it quickly. It says, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. See, so just like the Jews at the Passover feast, these Galileans had a belief in Jesus that was solely based on his performance, his ability to do miracles. John tells us that Jesus performed many signs up at the feast, and when they saw what he was doing, they believed. But see, Jesus, as we'll see, he rebukes this type of belief later. 
because this isn't genuine belief. Listen, if you believe in Christ simply as a miracle worker who would be really useful to you, that is not the type of honor that Christ is seeking. And most importantly, there's no salvation in that. Unfortunately, there are millions of people around the world that view Jesus this way. They welcome Christ into their lives as long as he is this way-making, miracle-working, mountain-moving Savior that will slay every giant. Yes, give me that, Jesus. Their affections for Christ have absolutely nothing to do with his atoning work on the cross. They don't care that Jesus has given himself to reconcile you to God, to free you from condemnation and God's righteous wrath and judgment. They don't want the Savior. They just want the stuff. They aren't seeking salvation. They are seeking sensation. Seeking Jesus this way is deadly. It's deceptive. See, because you've compromised the gospel of Jesus Christ that redeems sinners, and you have exchanged it for this prosperity gospel, which isn't a gospel at all. There are millions of people all over the world who have fallen victim to this false gospel. You see, just like these Galileans, they are consumed with the miraculous. They love the signs and wonders. If you're simply seeking Christ Jesus because you expect him to meet all of your needs, cure all of your diseases, fill your bank accounts, pay your bills, fix your relationships, that's not saving faith. That's idolatry. Because you've fallen in love with the gift above the giver. You see, saving faith in Jesus Christ is believing in him for the forgiveness of sins, trusting that he is the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, believing that Jesus is the only way to God, that he is the resurrection and the life, trusting that he is sufficient to reconcile you to God. That is the saving faith that honors Jesus Christ. That's the honor that he is seeking. Not those who simply love the miraculous, the signs and the wonders. Listen, I, I want to be clear. I want to make sure that I say this. I'm not saying that we shouldn't play, pray for miracles to happen. That's not what I'm saying. In fact, I know of people with some incredible stories that have received these terminal diagnoses. And then they go to the doctor and suddenly they can't find any trace of the disease. It's, it's just gone. Or being down to your last dime and suddenly a check shows up out of nowhere and all your needs are met. God is incredibly and infinitely capable. So he does indeed do the miraculous. And it's okay for us to pray for certain things. But Jesus' ability to perform the miraculous can't be what our faith in him is founded upon. Right? Us following Jesus can't be contingent upon his performance. So is that you here this morning? Here's an opportunity for us to stop and examine our motives, to look at our innermost desires and ask ourselves, do I love Christ Jesus because he's taken away my sin and my shame, because he's bore the wrath that was meant for me? 
Or have I only welcomed Christ into my life because I'm expecting him to perform to a certain level? Listen, if you haven't believed in Jesus Christ for salvation and you've believed all of these other miracles, that's fine. You can attribute every miracle to God. If you haven't believed in Jesus Christ for the salvation and forgiveness of sins, you are lost. You're on the outside looking in. And Christ receives no honor in that. See, these people were thirsty for the signs. They didn't want the living water that Jesus offers. They had no desire for him. That's the welcome that we see here in these verses. And as we look at verse 46, we move from the welcome now to the request. See, verse 46 moves this story along, and it really begins the bigger part of this section of Scripture, this main encounter between Jesus and this official. See, verse 46 tells us that Jesus is again in Cana of Galilee, where he turned water to wine. This is where Jesus has performed his first miracle that John records in chapter 2. And this is essential to understanding this passage because this lets us know that these people had a history with Jesus. They had seen what he had done, or at least heard about what he had done, turning the water to wine at that wedding ceremony. And the second half of verse 46 tells us that there was this official there who had come from Capernaum because his son was ill. So who is this official? Well, we don't know. We don't ever get his name. We're just told that he is an official. And it is believed that he was in service to Herod, who was the tetrarch of Galilee at the time. See, the word that's used here for official is the Greek word basilikos, which is derived from the word basileus, which means royal or imperial. So this man is a royal official. He has a title, most likely serving under Herod. But even this man here, despite his position, which carries some authority and command, he has a problem that he can't fix. He's got a son who's dying. So he's desperate. He's desperate to save his son. So he travels all the way from Capernaum to find this man named Jesus. Let's look at verse 47. And it says, when this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and he asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This man has heard about Christ. He's caught wind of what Jesus has been doing, and he understands he's heard that he's traveling to Galilee. So this man in his desperation says, I'll go. It was about 16 miles between Capernaum and Galilee, so it was a good day's journey. Again, this man is desperate. He wants to save his son. And this even, again, speaks to the popularity of Jesus, that word had traveled there about what Jesus was doing and that this man heard about Jesus. See, word had spread all over region. People were obsessed with Jesus. Even Mark, the gospel writer, writes about the frenzy that surrounds Jesus. See, there's an encounter in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus heals this leper, and then Jesus goes to the man and says, hey, don't tell anybody. What do you think he does? Tells everybody, right? Mark chapter 145 tells us this. It says, and he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in the desolate places, and people were coming to him 
from every quarter. People were coming from everywhere to see Jesus. It was popular. They loved him. And as we just talked about, some of it was genuine, most of it not. Anyway, news reaches this man of this miracle worker named Jesus, and he's hoping that Jesus can save his son. So he travels to find Jesus and asks him to come down to heal his boy. He's at the point of death. Now, it's important to note that this man had some kind of belief about Jesus. Now, I don't believe that he believed Jesus to be the Savior and Messiah and the Son of God. He just believed he could help. He just believed, look, Jesus can probably cure and heal my son. That's why I'm going to him. At this point, the man doesn't have a legitimate saving faith in Jesus Christ. He just needs his help to save his son. So how does Jesus respond to this man and his request? Let's look at verse 48. And it says, so Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Wow. Come on, Jesus. Isn't that harsh? I mean, the man's desperate. He's hurting. His son is sick. He's dying. Why the stiff arm here, Jesus? This is very similar to how Jesus responds to his mother in John chapter 2 at his first, the first sign that he performed. She comes to him, says, hey, we're out of wine. Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with me? It's very similar here. Why, why does Jesus brush this guy off? Why the rebuttal? Listen, man, if you have this view of Jesus as this soft, sensitive pushover as a man, you can't be reading the same Bible I'm reading. If you pick it up and read it, that picture of Jesus quickly goes away. Everything that Jesus said, his words, his questions, his responses, it was all right and appropriate. Whether it was harsh, whether it was fierce, ferocious, aggressive, or tender and loving, it's right. It's right. And that's another sermon for another Sunday, but here this man has traveled and he's made this request of Jesus and the Lord responds with, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Now it's important to note that uh, both uses of the word you in this verse are plural. So Jesus isn't just speaking to this man rebuking him. This is more so a rebuke to the Galileans or to the Jews overall. He's saying you, or he's saying, as we like to say in Virginia, y'all, right? That's a plural you. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. See, Jesus is rebuking his own people here because they've disregarded his message of salvation, and they're only chasing the miraculous. They only want to see the miracles that he performs. They want nothing to do with his message of salvation. So he's saying, man, unless you see the signs and wonders, you will not believe. See, this rebuke here really serves to put further distance between him and this group of disingenuous believers. It further solidifies the reality that Jesus doesn't want to be regarded as simply a worker of miracles. These men and women had received him solely on the grounds of what he could do for them. Now, it's also important to notice, we've certainly seen in the scriptures, right, where signs can solidify faith in Christ, right? I think one of the best examples of that is the resurrection, right? 
If you look back in John chapter 2, it talks about how Jesus uh, foreshadows his resurrection when he talks about them tearing down the temple and raising it up on, third days, on the third day. Then it says, after his resurrection, the disciples believe. They remember that word, his word, and they believed. Or even in John chapter 2, the first sign that Jesus performs, right where he turns water to wine at the end of that encounter, it says the disciples believed. Now, they had already believed in Jesus, right? And we know that because they had left everything to follow him. See, that's important for us to consider here is the faith of the disciples. Jesus just says, follow me. He doesn't show them any miracles. He doesn't do anything. He just says, follow me. They put down their nets. They leave their families, their lives, their occupations, and they just go. And then Jesus performs this sign, and it says they believed. That's solidifying their faith. That's not the basis or foundation of their faith. It only helped to strengthen their faith, the miracles that Jesus performed. But here Jesus is rebuking this crowd for lusting after signs and wonders, and he essentially rebukes the request of this official. But in verse 49, the official continues to plead with Jesus. He says, sir, please come down before my child dies. Now notice something here. He, he makes no mention of the rebuke. He says nothing about the statement that Jesus has just made because he's solely focused on the life of his son. He wants his son to live, and he believes he's found the singular source of salvation for his son, the only one that can save his boy. He knew that Jesus was it, nothing else. It's all I have. I have to turn to this man because I don't know where else to go. I want to ask you, brothers and sisters, in your own moments of desperation and uncertainty and tribulation, are you turning to Christ? And I don't mean as your last resort. Are you turning to him, flinging yourself upon his mercies, pleading with him like this official? Or in your moments of desperation and despair, are you turning elsewhere? Maybe you're looking to the world to assist you. Maybe it's people. Maybe it's substances or possessions or accomplishments. It could be any number of things. Some of us fail to realize that we are sons and daughters of the living God and we have access to this great and glorious God through his son, Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, are you turning to him this way? And I don't mean just when you're desperate, when things are so terrible that you can do nothing else. I mean, are you looking to Jesus daily, dependent upon his grace and mercy and provision? And do you trust God to do whatever he wills? And you're okay with that. Or are you turning to him with some sort of expectation where you're only satisfied if he answers the prayer, your prayer the way you want? You're only satisfied if he gives you exactly what you ask for. Brothers and sisters, I would encourage you now to consider your prayer life. Take an honest inventory of your prayer life. Is it praise and adoration, confession and thanksgiving and gratitude towards the Lord? Or is it just requests and demands? Am I just asking God for stuff? 
See, we often ask God to fix our situations. How often are we praying God to use our situations to change us and make us more like Christ? We know that God wants our sanctification, our holiness. How often are we praying for that? Are we trusting God when we turn to him? See, the desperation of this official reminds us of something, that we're all desperate. Every one of us is desperate. Some of us just don't know it yet. You see, just as Jesus was the only one who could save this official son, Jesus is our only source of salvation. He is the only means to deliverance and life and redemption and forgiveness. You see, because of our sin, we've been eternally separated from God. But God, in his mercy, has given us Jesus Christ. He's fixed the desperate situation that our sin has placed us in. Amen, somebody. And praise God for his son, who's willing to stand in our place who's bore the wrath that was meant for us, who's carried the burden of our sins, who's the mediator between God and man. Man, you want a sign that's miraculous? Look no further than the cross. There's no greater miracle than God justifying sinners, calling them righteous, and adopting them into his family as sons and daughters. There's no greater miracle than that. You see, just as this man was desperate for his son to live and hopeless apart from Jesus' divine intervention, we are all desperate apart from the atoning work of Christ and the saving grace of God. That's it. That's all of us. We're all desperate, just as this man. And that's what this reminds us of. So we've seen this welcome in the welcome, we've seen now the request. We'll finally move to our last scene in this encounter, and it's the response. That's verses 50 to 54. I want to briefly read the first half of verse 50. The official, he's come down, and he said, please come and heal my child. And Jesus responds. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. So after offering this sharp rebuke, Jesus accommodates the man's request. He does what he asks. And verse 50 really serves as an essential piece to this encounter. This is crucial for us understanding the main idea here. I want you to look at the second half of verse 50. So Jesus tells the man to go. Then it says, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went on his way. Now, why is that significant? Because you have to remember, the man hadn't seen anything. He hadn't seen Jesus perform any miracles. He'd only heard about Jesus. But here he exercises an even greater measure of faith than Jesus's own people. The text says he believed Jesus's word. That's important. Everybody say word. Word. He believed Jesus's word. That's it. He believed the words of Jesus and he went on his way. He didn't stand there and demand a sign. Like, Jesus, I need you to prove this to me. He didn't keep reckoning with Jesus. Remember, he had initially asked him to come to his house and play, lay hands on his son. He wanted him to come with him physically. But Jesus says, go. 
And the man believed and he just went. See, this is the beginning of true faith. Even if this man has yet to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, unlike the Galileans, he's shown that he did not need signs and wonders to believe. Now we start to see where this encounter connects with the rest of John chapter 4 and really the previous encounter with the Samaritans. You see, if the idea here is faith without the necessity of miracles, and Jesus is rebuking that idea here, what helps us to hone in on that truth is not only contrasting the faith of the official, but it's also contrasting the false belief of the Galileans with the Samaritans. So now we see where this all comes together. We see these two ideas that John will continue to contrast throughout his gospel account, that there's genuine belief and then there's false belief. You see, one of these groups demands a sign. But the Samaritans, and even now this royal official, they simply believed because of Jesus' words. Man, I love that Jesus says go, and the man just goes. He doesn't ask any questions. He doesn't demand anything further from Christ. He just goes. Simple obedience. Brothers and sisters, is that you this morning? Are you taking Jesus at his word this way? Are we exercising faith by simply believing what God has already said to us right here? Do we believe that? Are we acting on that? See, without any further confirmation, this official just goes. He believes the words of Jesus, and he takes him at his word, and he goes. Will you? Will you believe him this way? You know, I think a lot of us, whether we'll admit it or not, we, we want more from the Lord, don't we? His word isn't always enough for us. Some of us, we want a sign from God, don't we? Like, Lord, I really think I want to take this job that's coming up, but I need a sign from you, Lord. Man, I really want to move overseas and be a missionary, but God, is that really what you're telling me to do? If you just give me a sign, I'll go. Man, I really like this guy, Lord. He's a believer. Should I marry him? I don't know. I need you to give me a sign, God. Like, we want to do these things, but we need God to give us a sign first. Listen, we have the Word of God in our hands. What else do we need? Amen? God has told us what He demands of our lives. If you want to move to somewhere overseas and be a missionary, do it. God's told us to go to all the nations and make disciples. You don't need some brochure to show up on your desk to tell you that. Right? We don't need anything further. God has spoken to us clearly in his word and through his son. What else do we need? My hope is that we would take God at his word. And as we read through the Bible, as we read the written and revealed word, we would believe it. We would trust it, and we would respond in obedience to it. Trusting God's word, believing all that he said. Listen, I don't know if you know it or not, but this book is full of some wonderful promises. Some beautiful promises that as believers, as the children of God, we can take hold to. And God's greatest, greatest promise is through his son, Jesus Christ, that he has joined us to himself, that we've been reconciled, forgiven, redeemed, 
through his son, Jesus. That's ultimately the greatest promise that we find right here. I hope that encourages you. I hope that you believe that and you act upon that this morning. That's faith. That's real belief. Believing what God has already said to us. Amen? But the text tells us that this man goes on his way and Next day, as he's traveling home, his servants run out and they meet him. They say, your son is recovered. He's well. The man says, well, when did that happen? They said, yesterday at about the seventh hour. And it says the man remembered that that was the moment that Jesus had said to him, go and your son will live. See, here John does something incredible. He highlights Jesus' divine power. You see, though Capernaum was 16 miles away, Jesus speaks and the young man is healed instantly. It didn't take hours for it to take effect. Jesus spoke and changed the boy's situation immediately, instantly. See, this official responds to the news of his son's recovery with a deeper and greater belief in Jesus. It says not only did he believe, but his entire household. Now, again, I want you to think about this. Those in his household, they hadn't seen Jesus. They hadn't talked to him. They hadn't met him. So this man had to evangelize his family. He has to tell them, look, like the Samaritan woman, you're not going to believe this guy I just talked to. you got to see him. He spoke and healed my son. That's why he's better, because of the words of this man. What an incredible encounter this is. Could this be the Messiah? I'm sure this man was excited. And so he evangelizes his family, and it says that he and his whole household believe. What an incredible miracle this is. See, John closes this section by saying that this is Jesus' second sign that he performed. There were other miracles that Jesus performed, but this is the second one that John records for us here. And if we remember John's purpose in writing this gospel, his purpose is to show us that Jesus is the Son of God, and that we would believe in him, and by believing in him, we would have life in his name. See, John gives us these signs so we have a better understanding of who Jesus is. He shows us Christ's divine power and his authority over all. He speaks, and this young man is healed. He was 16 miles away. He could have been 16 million miles away, and it wouldn't have mattered because Jesus has authority over it all. And he speaks and heals this young man. This also shows the grace of Jesus Christ. And he obliges this man. He didn't have to do it. But he graciously grants the officer's request. He was under no obligation to this man, but he saves his son. What a loving act of kindness this is. See, as we look at this story, there's a, there's a great danger to this story and stories like this. You see, people will look at encounters like this and they'll say, see, if I, just, if I just pray enough and I ask God, he will do it for me. See, look, the official asked him twice and he did it. He healed his son. That's all I have to do is just keep asking God. If I just pray enough, he'll do whatever it is I ask of him. While this story worked out well for this official, Jesus did indeed heal his son and save him. 
That might not be the same story for you. Jesus may not heal your disease. God may not save your family member. He may not reconcile your marriage. Your lot in life may be one of tribulation and difficulty. So we can't simply look to God to fix all of our problems. We can't pursue Jesus with an expectation that he's some genie in a bottle and we rub the lamp when it's convenient for us and he'll do all the things we want. He'll grant all of our wishes. That's not how this works. There's a great danger to looking at Jesus this way. So we don't worship Jesus just because he moves mountains and he's a way maker and miracle worker and all of these things that we sing about in these songs. That's great because, amen, yes, he does do the miraculous. Praise God. But we worship Jesus because he saved us eternally. The biggest mountain that he's moved is the mountain between you and God because of your sin. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's made a way for us eternally to be saved. You see, stories like this point us to a greater reality, to the glory of Christ, so that we would believe on him as the Savior of the world. You see, though this was a great miracle that Jesus performed, it led to an even greater miracle, the life-changing faith in Christ that was birthed by this man in his household because he met Jesus Christ. That's the greater miracle, that his heart was changed, and he comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. See, as we prepare to close our time this morning, I want to end our time together the same way that I began, by asking you a question. What are you seeking? Why are you following Jesus? Is it an affection for signs and wonders? Because Jesus isn't interested in those type of followers. Jesus came seeking the lost, seeking sinners that would turn to him, who would repent and seek him for forgiveness and recognize that he's the only way to salvation. Maybe you're here this morning and you're beginning to realize as we have this conversation, man, I've aired all of this time. I have looked at Jesus this way. I have pursued the miracles and not the Messiah. Maybe an honest inventory of your heart and your life shows that you've only honored Jesus as a miracle worker for what he can do for you. If that's you this morning, then I encourage you to confess, to repent, and to look to him this morning, to trust in him as the glorious Savior that he is, the one who offers salvation and forgiveness to all who look to him, forgiveness of sins. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ. You've heard me speak about this Savior, this Messiah, this miracle worker. Maybe you have no relationship with Jesus. Well, I want you to know this morning that he is a miracle-working, mountain-moving, glorious Savior. But again, the greatest miracle that he's performed is overcoming your sin, what separates you from God. 
The most incredible miracle is Jesus dying on the cross, being buried, and then raising on the third day, conquering sin and death and accomplishing something that's eternally glorious for all those that believe. He's redeemed the lost. He's made a way for you to be joined to God the Father. Jesus provides relationship for sinful human beings to creator God. Praise God for that reality this morning. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us that he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the power of Christ. That's what Jesus does. That is infinitely glorious. That is why we pursue him. That is why we gather and worship him, because he is the great and glorious Savior. Look to him this morning and be saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we've had together, for this opportunity to fellowship. God, we thank you for your grace and mercy shown to us in Christ Jesus. Or for any of us in here this morning who may be simply seeking you for the signs and wonders and things we think that you will provide for us, God. Rebuke us of that idolatry this morning. God, I pray that our hearts would be changed, that we would see you, Jesus, as the greatest treasure, that we would seek you for you. Call us to repentance this morning. Lord, I pray for anyone in here this morning that doesn't know you, for those who are separated from you, who haven't come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would do the work of changing their hearts this morning, that they wouldn't walk out of this building the same way that they came in. We thank you for Jesus. He unites us to you. Help us live in a way that honors him as Lord and Savior, that we treasure and delight in him apart from our circumstances. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.